the Construction Employers Podcast, your connection to what's happening in the Northeast Ohio construction industry. Brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Part of what CEA does on a regular basis is advocate for contractors and quality construction in Ohio. And, of course, part of that is talking with public officials before and after they are elected. So this year, the remaining of the year until November, I'm going to be speaking with several public officials and candidates for public office to give our listeners a better idea of who is on the ballot this November and to strengthen the ties and the uh, level of dialogue between public servants and the construction community. Today's interview will be with Dave Greenspan, who is an Ohio State Representative in the Ohio House for District 16, which is on the west side of Cleveland, also includes uh, the near west suburbs, Bay Village, Fairview Park, North Olmsted, Rocky River, and Westlake. I live in that district, and we've known Dave for 10 years. He has been a listener to our issues and a good friend of the industry for 10 years, uh, six years in the county council, and then the last four years in the Ohio House of Representatives for District 16. Dave is a Republican and is running for re-election this November. So without further ado, I give you Dave Greenspan. Hello, Representative Greenspan. Hey, Tim, how are you? Good. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you're doing well. Doing well. You know, a little tired here. We were talking, we we were in session last night till almost 2 a.m. And then I drove home. So, uh, so it's all good. All good. And it's 9 a.m. now. So you've had what, two hours, three hours of sleep? (laughs) I got three hours. Yeah. Geez. Well, but but I'm I'm on my, I'm on my second cup of coffee. So we're good (laughs) for now. Maybe a nap later. Um, so where do you live at? So we're in Westlake. Okay. You and, and you, uh, you still have children at home? I do. I do. So yeah, I have, I'm married. I have, um, three children. I have a 26 year old daughter who lives in New York city. I have a 24 year old son who's a, a drone pilot in the air force. Wow. And I have a nine year old who's uh, going into fourth grade. Awesome. Very cool. Um, so I imagine these days are, uh, interesting times to be a legislator. It's been, it, it is interesting. You know, it, there's a lot going on, obviously with the first with the coronavirus and, and then obviously dealing with the, with the shutdown of the economy, um, the challenges and dealing with the unemployment system and, and then now restarting the economy and getting feedback, you know, from, from constituents where they business constituents or, or, uh, residents to help them navigate through not only the, the shutdown, but now the reopen mm-hmm. the unemployment, the employment system, um, was, was a challenge still is a challenge. Uh, we've been very fortunate and, and I have two staff, uh, personnel and one of them I assigned her specifically to help constituents deal with this, the unemployment situation. And, and I'm happy to report that, that our, uh, open case, file is virtually non-existent, meaning we've been able to help as many constituents from the district that have reached out and need help, not only with the traditional state unemployment system, but also the PUA, uh, you know, the 1099 environment, which, you know, the federal government announced in April, early April, then didn't give the guidance 
Oh yeah. Until almost, almost the first of May. And then the funding wasn't available until May 15th. So we had folks who had expectations of a quicker turnaround. And part of the issue was the system and the software wasn't designed to handle PUA case, you know, case loads period, right. because they were never in the system, let alone the fact that we had information coming out of the federal government that said, Hey, beginning of April, we didn't get guidance until the end of April. The software had to be written by May 15th. So we've been successful in, in helping navigate um, our folks through both systems, the traditional unemployment system and the PUA system. Um, and so much so that actually my staff member has been reassigned temporarily to another member's office who has a couple hundred case backlog wow. to help them navigate through their system. So um, she's done a she's done a great job in in our office and helping our constituents. And so that's been very beneficial. And then obviously on top of everything else with with the with the corona co- coronavirus COVID nineteen scenario, we had you know this this civil unrest and and the protests and and what that entailed insofar as over the last few weeks and. In, in dealing obviously with with the emotional and and, and the, the true you know the true and perceived um, challenges relating to to the unfortunate death of 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 the gentleman in Minneapolis, right? And then put on top of that, you know, some of the public safety issues we've had to deal with here, and not only in Cleveland but throughout the state. So, when, when, um, when you were talking about the unemployment situation, you mentioned PUA. Yeah. What does that mean? That's the federal 1099 program. Okay. So that's the program for folks who 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 aren't in the traditional uh, unemployment system environment. So, if you remember, the federal government came out right. and and created a program to help those folks who were not eligible for unemployment to receive unemployment like benefits. Mm-hmm. And um, you know that's helped. That's helped. And I think as you're starting to see the economy, and I I, I missed the details of the Secretary of State's press conference, uh, not Secretary of State, Lieutenant Governor's press conference yesterday. But we're starting to see, I think I heard the number, over 240,000 people have now come off the unemployment system since they originally went on. So we are starting to see folks come back into the workforce. We're seeing that at the, at the federal level as well. Um, there will be, and I don't think any of us are, are, are of the belief that we're going to get back to, down to 4% unemployment rate right. anytime soon. You know, there, 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 is a, there are challenges that we're, we're going to be dealing with. A number of businesses um, either can't open fully right now because of restrictions or, or, or you know, restrictions placed on their ability to open. Uh, and some businesses, unfortunately, um, are not coming back right. uh, at all. And, you know, the, I was on a call in April with, with the, um, with the uh, National Restaurant Association. And they said at that point, they'd received confirmation from 11% of their members nationally that the um, that their restaurants their members were closing permanently mm. that was then and and that number is going to be higher and you know now um, unfortunately one of the great challenges we have with that it depends on the community you live in and depending on your tax base but we've got some communities in Cuyahoga County in particular where up to 35 percent of their tax base comes from restaurants as an example right and when you have that many restaurants, closing, um, there's a concern about obviously, you know, the income tax that's generated from that, um, from the state's perspective, the sales and liquor tax that's related to that property taxes. I mean, there, there, there are, there are a number of areas that are going to be significantly, uh, impacted mm-hmm. based Stressing on how the their system it is, it is. And, 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 and each community is going to deal with it differently. I have a community that's 93% residential. 
So from the, from if you look at it from a business perspective, like local businesses, the seven percent of business in the business environment that's there, commercial and some retail, no industrial, um, their impact on their on their um, income tax revenue from income tax generated within their community is not going to be dramatically impacted mm-hmm. from that seven percent business environment because they're largely able to open and operate. The, obviously, we're all going to see, and, and we're all feeling various forms of income tax strain. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the big concerns of local mayors and, and talking with my mayors and my school boards, and I'll touch base on something we did yesterday to help schools, is a large component of their of their tax base is our, our property taxes. And you might think, and, and, and it's true that the property taxes are probably one of the most predictable and reliable sources of local income, except for the wild card here. Is we don't know what the what the um, what the rate is of those who will be delinquent, and you know right. as that delinquency goes up, that means there's less income, uh, less property taxes received for our schools and for our cities and counties and, and levies and things like that. So it's something we're keeping an eye on. Uh, yesterday in the House, uh, Senator Dolan actually I tried in the Senate in the House last week. Um, to offer an amendment, which was tabled, uh, not tabled, but was pulled, that would help our schools. You know, if we saw, you know, the, the governor made tax cuts of three, or um, distribution cuts of $300 million to the public schools throughout the state, in my district, four of my five public school districts were negatively impacted by that. Right. And Rocky River is an example. They, they lost 55% of their state funding uh, by the original cut. So what Senator Dolan put together in the Senate, and I was able to work with it in the House, is to provide an amendment into a bill, which we which we did yesterday, um, which was a concurrence vote, and so now it goes right to the governor. And I t- spoke on this on the floor, was to, to basically say that no school district will lose more than 6% uh, funding year over year mm. in the aggregate. So right. it's a combination of, of state funding and the CARES Act funding. And so for Rocky River and, and Westlake is an example, Westlake lost 41% in the original cut. They're, they're each going to, to no more than six. They're each going to receive an extra half a million dollars uh, in state funding to help them, you know, through this time, which we know is very challenging. Sure. So I'm, I'm proud of that today that we were able to get that done and, and the House concurred on the Senate vote and it goes to the governor, mm-hmm. goes to the governor's desk. Uh, hopefully they'll sign it and it has emergency clause. So, uh, once he signs it, it immediately goes into effect and these districts will get that money. Oh, that's good. Yeah. As a Rocky river resident, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it, it, we've got great schools out here and, and unfortunately the general perception is, is we've got a huge payer base to, to pick up the cost where the state, you know, reappropriates money, the districts who are challenged, more challenged economically. So the burden falls more locally and Rocky river pays nearly 98% of its, uh, school funding locally. Right. And other districts just don't have that opportunity. We heard testimony that uh, down in Appalachia, a one mil increase in tax revenue generates about $50,000, hmm. where a one mil up here in, in our communities could be anywhere between one and a half to two million dollars. Right. So so we, we you know, we've got some issues within the state and education, but we're working we're working through it. Yeah, I want to talk to you a little bit more about that. But um, before we do that. I'd like to just take a step back and get to let our listeners get to know you a little bit if they haven't met you already. Yeah. Um, you're, are you native Ohioan? I think you're a transplant like me, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, when, when I speak to groups, I always talk. I always start with the three P's, right? So, personal, professional, political. So, mm-hmm. so personally, as we talked about, I'm married. Um, 
I have three children live here in Westlake. Um, the, so professionally I've, I've got a degree from Troy university in Alabama. We, um, I've been very fortunate in my political, uh, my professional career that, that I've been, I've worked my way up from a staff accountant to CFO of two public companies. Uh, I've also been a CEO and a CEO. So I understand the complete business environment. Uh, primarily though, I've been working in startups since 1997. Prior to that, um, I was chief operating officer of the PGA tour radio network. Uh, I worked for, for, uh, Atlanta Olympic broadcasting. I was number two in charge of planning the radio and coordinating the planning, the radio and television for the 96 Olympics. Uh, prior to that, I worked for Turner broadcasting and, and both sports and nonfiction documentary programming. So I've got a very broad, broad exposure into various areas. Um, and, and after I left the entertainment world, I went into technology and, and that's where my two, my two, uh, public CFO stands for with two technology related companies. Okay. So it's been, it, I've had a, a broad exposure to the business environment, which I think lends nicely to me being able to evaluate and assess public policy. Politically, um, I've been very fortunate in that world as well. Uh, I've always been interested in the public process and, and you know, was, went to college on a leadership scholarship. I was president of my student body in high school, involved in the student senate when I was in college. When I moved to Atlanta, uh, the area that I lived in uh, was looking to incorporate. And Georgia's a little different environment when it comes to incorporation. In Ohio, if you reach a certain size and population, you gain a certain status. In Georgia, it's actually an act of the legislature. Mm-hmm. And the area that the area that, that we incorporated was is an area called the now well the city of Sandy Springs. It borders Atlanta to the north. So if you're familiar with the Atlanta area, it's right in between Atlanta and the city of Roswell. And it's a city of hundred nearly a hundred thousand people. Uh, very very compact. Um, you know about thirty eight square miles. Hundred thousand people. Three major hospital systems uh, in the area. Five Fortune. And now I think six Fortune five hundred companies have it. I moved here about 13 years ago. Right, um, a growing population, uh, very diverse. Uh, but I was elected. I was involved in the referendum to become a city, so we had to go to the legislature and ask for their approval to give us a referendum. Uh, they did. It passed 93 to seven for us to become a city. And uh, from there, I, w- I ran for the inaugural city council, which I was elected to, and served for two years from 2005 to 2007 until I moved here to Ohio. Right. When I moved here, I immediately reached out to my mayor and I said, hey, listen, uh, Mayor Westlake, how can you use me? You know, here's my background here and my skills. And he appointed me to the Board of Zoning Appeals. And I served there for a few years until I was elected to the inaugural county council uh, in Cuyahoga County, w- where I served for six years from 2011 to 2016. Um, and I was fortunate to, to chair a committee initially dealing with ethics. And I introduced and was adopted the, the first ethics ordinance in the, in the county. Uh, and then we were able to um, adopt, among other measures, but in the ethics world, uh, and created the first county inspector general in the entire state of Ohio, which uh, last year, two years ago, the county put that on the ballot to make it a charter uh, position, which, which I'm happy they did. So now that's part of the county's constitution, so to speak, the county's sure. charter. Yeah. During ter- term limits, um, offered the opportunity for me to run for the state house and the district I represent the five cities of Bay village, Fairview park, North Oaks at Rocky river and Westlake are the same five cities that I represented as the County. So mm-hmm. I've been fortunate. And this is my 10th year in representing these five communities. And as you know, as a resident of this, this district, we've got great mayors and great cities and great schools. 
So it, 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 I'm very honored to, to serve this region uh, for the last 10 years. And we've certainly had a good relationship with you the last 10 years. We, we got to know you, I think, during your campaign for county council. Um, you've always been a listening ear and, and willing to get together and, and hear what our contractors are are saying and what we need. Um, so we yeah, appreciate that. Um, well, I, I appreciate the relationship as well. I, um, I'm on your campaign website, and, and I'm going to ask you a question about your philosophy as a legislator. But uh, the quote on the homepage from Senator Zell Miller, what does that mean to you? Right. So, yeah, so it's interesting. I, I read well, Governor Senator Zell Miller, you know, his, his book, you know, a national party no more. And at the bottom of page 111, top of page 112, I don't know how I remember this, <laughs> but I read that, I read that quote and, and it stuck with me. It, it really was impactful. It puts it in perspective, in my opinion, as to the role of, of government and the role of the citizenry. And, you know, our, our objective is, is not, is fundamentally to create the environment for people to be successful and reach their objectives. Um, yeah, it was interesting. I, I met Senator Miller uh, at an event, and I actually have a picture in my home office of he and I. Uh, and it's supposed to be one of those pictures where you go and stand next to him and sm- both of you smile at the same time. Right. You know, we've seen those pictures. And I said to him, and, and, and the, the photographer captured it right at, right at the wrong time for him. <laughs> said, hey, you remember that quote on the bottom of page 111 and 112 that he was signing his book? And he was like, yeah, I remember that quote. And I said, do you really? And he said, no, what did it say? <laughs> it was kind of funny. And, he, right. and he's laughing as he's, and the photographer took the picture. And, and now I have that picture in my home office. It's, it's actually pretty, pretty funny. But, you know, I, I just believe that. I believe that, you know, the less government, the less intrusive, less regulations, the better we are. And we provide an opportunity for businesses to, to succeed with as little government interference as possible. Right. And do you think that's true in a pandemic like we've had the last three months? Well, that's that's an interesting discussion, right? Because you've got to weigh, you know, public health versus with with public with the adequate public policy. Yeah. Um. So you know, looking back now, do do we believe that the that the measures taken were sufficient? I you know to to stamp you know stamp out the pandemic of outbreak here in Ohio. Versus what we saw in other states, I think Governor Dewine did some things early on that helped us not realize a, a tremendous spread. Right, right. I think if you go back and you look historically, you know, the canceling of the Arnold with eighty thousand athletes from over a hundred countries coming into our state apparently was mm-hmm. the right move because we didn't have a spread related to that. The, the universities asking their college students or you know closing their campuses around spring break. You know, when I went to college, I went to school an hour and a half from Panama City. That was our spring break. We drove an hour and a half. Right. Today, because I've got two older kids, I mean, they're going to Europe, they're going to Mexico, they're traveling all over. And, you know, the concern of, of, of imagine 100,000 plus college kids coming back from spring break from literally all over the world as we were seeing global, you know, outbreaks in 184 different countries, I believe was a right move that helped us tamp down you know, the spread, right. uh, St. Patrick's day, you know, as painful as it was for the governor to make the decision to, to, to shut the restaurants and bars down two days before St. Patrick's day, um, was tough. It was tough, but, um, you know, and the parades to go along with it and everything. And, but I think that also had a positive impact in keeping the spread down. And, and the, the fourth thing that he did, which, which, you know, and, and I talked to the secretary of state about this, on the March 17th election and the continuing the election by mail 
till April 20, 28th. Right. Um, did, did, did some, did some things. We learned some things from a, an elections perspective, but by shifting it that way and, and the messaging, and I, like I said, I talked to Secretary of State, you know, about this. Yes, we had an issue and concern about the spread of at the polls. And we saw three weeks later in Michigan and three weeks later in Wisconsin, states that conducted their in-person elections during the pandemic, a spike in cases. Mm-hmm. But one of the big issues that goes unreported or underreported, I should say, not unreported, but underreported, is the fact that, especially here in Cuyahoga County, we had, I believe the number was close to a thousand poll workers call off in Cuyahoga County alone. And I got a call Sunday night before the primary from a colleague in Columbus, and she said, how are you looking for poll workers? And I said, what are you talking about? Mm-hmm. I, mean, I wasn't alerted to this until she called me. Right. And she said, in Franklin County, she said, we've got a concern. We don't think we can conduct a safe and secure election because we don't have enough poll workers. Right. Now, if, if the message was that versus you know the concern for the spread or the messages were, were, were sent together, I believe the electorate would have immediately said, because as I'm talking to you about it, a lot of folks, when I talk to them, like, I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. I didn't think yeah. about the impact of people of were scared. Yeah. They were scared. And a lot of the poll workers, as you know, are seniors. Sure. And so they were scared. And and there was a concern about being able to conduct an election. It would have been possible for you to go to your polling location in Rocky River on March seventeenth and the poll be closed because the poll workers didn't show up. Or right. not enough of them, you know, there's a there's a model. Not enough of the poll workers showed up. That would have been and with no adva- no no notice of how those folks, and in our district, we have a very high, we have a 50% voter turnout by mail, but a 50% turnout in person. In other parts of the state, we, we have one of the highest um, vote by mail turnouts in the state. In other parts of the state, it, it's 70% election day. Right. And if you imagine going to the poll on election day and it being closed because there yeah. aren't enough poll would workers, how would you, yeah, how would you vote? And because at that point, it would have been too late to make the decision to mail out ballots. It would have been. So anyhow, so by, by, by him, by the governor, you know, um, doing, you know, doing what he did in, in so far as, you know, continuing the election, but by mail for the next four weeks, um, I think really was, was, was um, advantageous in us being able to keep our spread down. Now, what does that mean? It means because I think we did those things. Ohioans listened. We stayed home. We did everything we did that our numbers are down. And in some ways, I believe we're victims of our own success. Right. When you look at the fact that we're the seventh largest state in population and our death rate, our hospitalizations, our intensive care uh, you know, stays are lower than, than states of, of comparable size, whether it be you know, four, five, and six, or eight, nine, ten, demonstrates that, that we did something right here in the state. And we should be proud of that as Ohioans. Right. And, you know, the governor was pretty was pretty direct when he said, look, in, in mid-April, he said, let's keep doing what we're doing. We're, we're working on, we're flattening the curve. We've got, we're building our PPE capacity. We're building our capacity in the hospitals to handle an, an influx in cases if we have it. He said, do what we're doing, and May 1st, we'll, we'll, we'll consider opening up the economy, which is exactly what he did. Right. And by May 15th, uh, you know, 95% of our economy, 93% of our economy was open. And now open to some degree, it's not a full sure. open, we're still not fully open, but businesses were able to go back, people were able to go back to work, people were able to get out of their homes a little bit more, you know, churches were never shut down, you know, he encouraged people to get out and go for walks and go to the park and do, you know, he wasn't saying like other governors were saying, lock down, stay in, you're not going out. Right. I mean, here we are, mid-June, and New York just went to phase one on Monday. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, we, we operated in advance and ahead of the federal guidelines. The CDC guidelines basically said and were recommending don't open until you have 14 days of declining numbers. We've never had 14 days of declining numbers. Right. I don't believe any state has. So the governor, I believe what he did was, is he said, okay, look, we're, we're, we're controlling the spread. We've got the, the necessary medical environment in place. Should we see a spike? Let's start opening up the economy. But it's still painful. I get it. I oh, mean, yeah. I talk to, to restaurant bar owners every day, and they want more and more, and I'm encouraging of that. I mean, I, I communicate with the administration and the governor about various issues um, impacting our constituents uh, as, as it relates to, to the lockdown. I'll tell you real quick, I don't mean to monopolize the conversation here, but, you know, I, I receive calls, and this is one of the, this is not a very widely, um, widely experienced uh, activity, but we have a lot of children that are take IEPs, individual education plans, children right. with developmental disabilities, with learning disabilities. Well, when the schools closed in, in March, those programs stopped. Right. And these kids, it's not about the educational experience alone, but it's about the therapies that they receive, the, the PT and OT therapies that help them um, navigate through whatever challenges they're, they're dealing with. Well, those all stopped. And I'm getting calls from parents saying, hey, look, we've got an issue. You know, what, what do we do with our, our five-year-old or our sophomore in high school who expects a consistency in their life and these therapies and everything's, you know, you know, uh, uh, you know, in right. turmoil right now. How hard must that so be? I communi- right. So I communicated with the administration a number of times and, you know, I tell them two or three times they were very responsive. And then the last school order that was issued they acknowledged and said to the, lo- to the local school districts, work with your health board to figure out how you can open to provide these services to these children. That to me not doesn't impact a huge amount of the population, but was a big win. Mm-hmm. You know, we on the retail environment, when the governor allowed for retail stores to open up May 12th, and you know, now big box was always open, but we're talking about small, you know, small independent retailers or smaller retailers can open up on May 12th. And I got a call from, from some florists and they said, Dave, May 12th doesn't work for us because Mother's Day is May 10th and that's 25% of our revenue. Right. And <laughs> so I communicate with the administration on a, I, I'll never forget this, on a Wednesday. And I said, I said, here's the challenge, whether it's florists, jewelry stores, chocolatiers, uh, you know, we all buy our wives and, and mothers different things for Mother's Day. We need to have these businesses open up earlier so they can take advantage of probably the make or breaks, you know, especially this time of year, the make or breaks, you know, event, seasonal sure. event mm-hmm. with Mother's Day. That was on a, on a Wednesday. On Friday, the governor made the announcement that um, retail stores can open up, um, I believe it was Monday. May 4th. Or what, maybe it was Saturday, you know, eight days before Mother's Day mm-hmm. by appointment, you know, by appointment, you know, uh, curbside and delivery. Well, that was huge for some of these small, you know, businesses. And, you know, we live here, you know, in, in urban suburban area, but, but in, in, in rural Ohio where you've got the, the floral shop that's been around for 50 years or 60 years and everybody, you know, knows who they are. And this was a big, this is a big deal. Right. And so, so I'm, I'm, I'm glad the administration was receptive to taking not only my ideas, but other ideas. And we see them. If you talk to various House members or senators, um, the administration was very receptive to taking their ideas that, that they were getting from us 
you know, and as the governor says, you know, you're, you're, you're our eyes and ears on the ground because you're closer to the district and people than anyone else. And, and so Senator Dolan and I work very hard and work together to advocate on behalf of our businesses and our residents, you know, through this tough time. And, and, you know, I'm hopeful and we're seeing declining numbers that they continue to decline. I'm a little leery as we sit here today and, you know, starting to notice increases in, in I believe, in cases, uh, hospitalizations and intensive care visits in, in 14 other states mm-hmm. that are now three to four weeks into their reopening plan. Uh, we, we, we are further along in our reopening plan, and we probably have one of the most aggressive reopening plans, especially when it comes to restaurants, uh, in the nation. You know, the governor didn't say 25 to 50% open. He said, here are the guidelines. You guys figure it out. Right. I have a friend of mine who owns a restaurant in Westlake, and he's about 80% open. Okay. His restaurant is configured and what he was able to do. So we have an aggressive plan, and, and you know, you know, we're going to get through this. Um, there are going to be some people who, who unfortunately are getting, you know, because the environment is, is what it is and they've lost their jobs and we're going to work hard at the state to try to assist them in getting, getting back into the, into the workforce. You know, one thing that, um, I have four children and one in college and, and three in, you know, K through 12 still, that's right. probably the, the most, uh, I think frustrating thing about this whole situation. I'm not placing blame anywhere, but. Yeah. Um, the, the local f- telling your local education boards to fi- figure it out themselves. That's a little frustrating because, um, you know, everybody's doing a little something different. You hear from your colleagues at work that so such and such school district is doing it this way and ours hasn't announced yet. And the other one is doing it that yeah. way. The college hasn't announced yet. Um, OSU announced what they're doing, Kent state, so on and so right. forth. Um, for everybody to have a different plan is a little frustrating, um, because of yeah, just it, planning it, it, as a parent, as a family, you know. Well, yeah, I, I've got a, I've got a rising fourth grader, so uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm with you on that. And especially when we talk about private schools, you know, because um, private schools rely on public school system, public districts, transportation plans, right? And you know that that's an issue that's going to need to be addressed in the fall. But but with public schools, you're right, and this this goes back to the whole discussion about local control versus. Versus, you know, a statewide plan. Right. And, you know, the, the districts have had the flexibility to determine, you know, prior to this, to determine, you know, when, to, when, when to begin their school year and when to end it. You know, the requirements are you have to have so many days within a school year to, to educate and here are the requirements. And by and large, you know, it's left to the district to determine what's best for their students. Okay. Um, so we're, 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 we're going to experience a little bit of that. You know, I, I, I've been advocating and candidly, I was advocating that the schools start in-person uh, instruction uh, at the beginning of May to send the kids back to school based on what we knew mm-hmm. and what we know, you know, with educate with, with this virus right now that, that young people aren't as susceptible as we thought, um, you know, to, to start to return to some normalcy right. for, our, for, you know, our school age kids. The challenge that comes up with that. And, and I understand it is, is it's not only the school age kids we're trying to protect, but a lot of the, the faculty and the staff, and the administration may be older. Right. A lot of, the, a lot of the, the school bus drivers, you know, are are older. A lot of the the cafeteria workers, a lot of the the, the, the staff are older, and right. so um, we need to to be you know mindful of that as well. One of our um, one of so, our one of my colleagues at CEA teaches as an adjunct professor at Kent State, and apparently the plan is. 
in-person classes for for all students uh, this fall, but the professors actually have the ability to remote in. So, like, oh, well, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's, that's how they're handling it. Yeah. So you know, my my it's my full expectation that that we'll be back in in in-person school in the fall, mm-hmm. uh, five days a week. You know, I've been advocating, you know. For the students, at least, no masks because I don't think that's necessarily practical. Right. Um, to to believe that they're gonna that they're gonna you know wear wear masks and and you know, but you'll you'll see some protocols in place that you know you know I, I think you'll see you know anybody coming into the building will have their temperature taken and the, the protocols sure. we're seeing now and a lot of hand washing yeah. until we see how this thing further develops. You know, hopefully we'll see less and less cases and and those restrictions will you know be be reduced or eliminated but yeah. at least we've got to get our kids back to school we've got to get them engaged in sports i agree you know an, acti- an activity i should say i agree so moving past coronavirus uh i know that's yeah. been sucking all the air out of the room this this spring yeah. but um what about construction issues are there any construction issues you've been working on recently well we, we just passed uh yesterday the reappropriations budget at the state it was about $1.3 billion, $1.2 and change, which basically projects, construction projects throughout the state, whether they be education, K through 12, higher ed, uh, community projects um, that were, that were appropriated funds in the past that just hadn't had a chance to, to draw down on those funds. Uh, we reappropriated a hundred percent of what was previously uh, appropriated. We reappropriated a hundred percent of what was previously appropriated. And how much uh, had been put, cut? How, how much had been cut out of that before? Uh, well, so the, the Senate version was the full restoration. The House originally, as introduced version, was about six hundred fifty million. So about half was cut wow. from at, in the House version. However, um, and a number of us were advocating for, for, for full restoration, which was what we ultimately voted on. Mm-hmm. So it's a full restoration of the reappropriation. Uh, we did just vote into Senate Bill Four. Last night, there was a prevailing wage provision, uh, which I happily supported, um, which clarified you know some issues with prevailing wage as it related to to items during this you know you know related to various construction projects. So um, that was widely accepted. Uh, I believe there were only two members, or I don't I don't recall, but a handful of members that voted against that. I voted for it, supportive of of that issue. So we we were able to get that put back in. So, um, you know, as far as this, this year's capital appropriation, I don't know what that's going to look like. We've sure. all submitted our projects, obviously with the tightening of, 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 um, revenue, uh, you know, we're, proje- we, you know, the governor was able to, to realize about a 750 to $775 million reduction in, in, in programming for the short year that ends June 30th mm-hmm. for next year. We're looking at around a, um, the numbers came out yesterday about a $2 billion deficit mm. based on the revenue shortfalls and how we're able to contain expenses. And that's something we're going to have to deal with. That fiscal year starts July 1st. Right. And so, you know, I don't know if there's an appetite. I don't know what the financial outlook is for those, those capital, the, the capital budget that we would normally do in year two of the general assembly. Um, because we, we, we don't issue that with cash. We issue it with debt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, what is our ability and our, our outlook and able to satisfy that debt? Right. So we're going to look at that. Um, obviously, that is those are additional projects, capital projects throughout the state and various levels. 
um, that help our communities in, in various ways and also provide excellent employment opportunities. So when uh, you, you said you bring your projects, each of you bring your projects to the capital appropriations budget, uh, what does that process look like? Do public authorities come to you and say, we'd like to, we'd like to do X, Y, or Z, and will you help us get that accomplished, or, or what, what happens? Yeah, so, so each of us does it differently. So, so I've got my process is, is this is we, we know towards the end of, of year one of a general assembly that we're going to be looking at capital, possible cap, a capital budget. Mm. So we wait for the guidance, you know, and typically it's the same guidance every year, but we wait, wait for the guidance. And, and I hold a, a basically a town hall meeting. And now what I'll do is I'll reach out to my, my mayors. Now I've got five cities, I have five mayors. I'll reach out to Cuyahoga County and, uh, and, you know, some other local stakeholders like that and I'll give them the guidance. And basically with them, they know how to, how to comply. So they will, will, I'd say I just need it back by the end of the year, by December 31st. And I give them the form and they do, they, they do what they do. For the general public, you know, for, for associations and organizations that may be eligible, right. I'll host an open town hall meeting. And um, I've, I've done it the last few years at the North Olmsted Library. And we open it up starting at 10 a.m. And I go through the capital budget process. A lot of these folks um, have been through the process before, but some haven't. And so I'll go through the process. I'll explain to them what's applicable and what's not. Um, I'll go through, you know, how, how to obtain eligibility because there may be a project that fits the, the, the eligibility category, but they need to have a public fiscal agent. They need to have a state nexus in some instances. So I'll help align them with, with a, a state partner. Um, I typically do that around November 15th. Around December 15th, I have a follow-up town hall meeting. That one I do by appointment. Um, right. Typically, I try to schedule them about 10 minutes apart. And folks reach out. And they, they we, we had about 18 people reach out for these 10, 15-minute appointments mm-hmm. uh, this past year. And I sat down with them and went through their capital budget application. And it gave me a time to, to work with them to fine-tune it between December 15th and December 31st. And then around December 31st, January 1st, when I get all the submissions in, um, you know, we go through the package one more time, we, my staff and me, and we um, will go through and critique it and make sure that, that everything's in there appropriately. I don't, what I don't want to have happen is, is an applicant within my district in particular submit an application and the application qualifies in every respect, but one, one I was not dotted or one T right. was not crossed. Right. So we really go through it and work with them. Uh, and then we submit it. So the process is in January. We submit it into the finance chair. And uh, sometime shortly thereafter, we sit one-on-one with the finance chair right. and review the, the prospects, the, the, the projects. What I will say is, is that the projects within my district are, are my top priority because nobody else is going to advocate for projects in my district other than myself sure. and Senator Dolan. So those, and I tell everyone up front, my top priority projects, whether it's nine or eight or 15, whatever the number is, are districts within my, are projects within my district. Um, and so we sit down and go through those. We were, last year, we had capital budget, my first capital budget. We were very successful. We had nine projects in four of my five cities, and we brought in nearly a million dollars in capital budget money uh, to help various organizations with various capital projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, we, we, we had a, about, we had about, um, I think we only had eight submissions from within the district. And um, 
And, you know, we made our submissions and I made my presentation, but we just are still waiting to see what we're going to do. I see. So I don't want to take up your whole day. I know you, you have things to get to and on one of your rare days off, but, um, just one more question. And, and that is, um, during your 10 years of, of service here in Northeast Ohio, what would be the one thing that you're most proud of? Well, so I, I probably need to break it up in the, in the two, in the two areas. So sure. when I was on the county, county council, um, I, I believe from where we were, if you, you know, if you look, look back, it's where we were in 2010, you know, eight, nine and 10 coming out of the corruption scandal mm-hmm. and looking at what we did in 2011, we adopted within the county within the first four months, uh, an ethics ordinance. Uh, and then shortly thereafter, you know, an inspector general program. Right. The reason that's important is because people, and just like when you invest in, in, in companies and, and invest in, in individuals, you invest it in, in two things quality of product and quality of management. And we have in Northeast Ohio, a, a tremendous quality of product. When you look at, you know, our, our assets as a whole in Cuyahoga County during that transition, we had a confidence issue in management. Right. And I believe it was important that we look at and reevaluate the County, how it operates and what it's, it's, it's presentation is to the general community. People are going to need to have confidence in Northeast Ohio. They need to have confidence in their leaders. Right. So I focused on that issue in particular in my first first six months, but then obviously in my first year or two to ensure that we set forward a solid foundation. The second thing in the county, I also was chair of the county finance committee. And in my, my two years as finance committee chair, we were able to present a budget, a $3 billion biennial budget, the largest in the state, other than the state largest county, to ensure that we're able to deliver products and, and, and service or services, I should say, to the constituents of the county. We did it in a way where we didn't raise taxes. We did not incur any additional debt. And we were able to put forward at that time an outcome-based budgeting strategy where we determined the funding based on expectations as to how those funds were to be used. That to me, that, that is, a, is a, the outcome-based budgeting model is a new budgeting model that is gaining momentum throughout the country because we, we preset what we expect when we appropriate funds. So at the county, that was one of my, you know, th- those were two of my, of my, of my strong programs that I believe were, were very important mm-hmm. at the state. Um, you know, we, we, I've been involved in, in so many different areas, uh, whether it's, it's early childhood education, we were able to put an amendment into the budget last general assembly that provides uh, fourth graders, funding to get early childhood education. It was cut in the budget for some reason, and we were able to get that put back in. So when you look at an educational environment for our young people, so they, they get the, the early education foundation they need to be successful later in life. I'm very proud of, of about that. Mm-hmm. So my early successes, you know, legislatively, I, I authored legislation which was signed into law to protect our firefighters and our policemen and our military members and our federal law enforcement folks that should somebody viciously attack them, there are protections in place mm. to protect those who protect and serve us. So, you know, those are some things that I'm proud of. I was fortunate last general assembly to introduce a number of pieces of legislation. Eight of them were, were either signed into law or were resolutions that were adopted. So that I'm, I'm proud of those items. This general assembly, I've had two bills signed into law in, in this kind of weird structure, you know, environment that we're in right now. Right. I've had two, um, and, and we just had another one go over to the Senate. So I expect, and I have, I have two more in the Senate right now. I expect one of a, a transparency bill in the Senate 
once again, kind of continuing my theme of providing good, open, transparent, accountable government uh, at the same time promoting, you know, protection provisions for those who serve and protect us, but also a number of economic development um, um, bills and uh, internal control measures. One that one one bill that that Representative Shuring and I, or now Senator Shuring and I, authored last General Assembly was provide a program to bring major sporting events to the state of Ohio. And and as Dave Gilbert with with the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission will tell you, without this program that was put in place, we would not have received the NFL draft next year, hmm. and we would not have received the 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 um, Major League All Star Game, or we're going to host you know a number of events throughout the state directly related to that program and it being in place. So I'm very proud that we were able to, to, um, to put that program in place right. to help our economy, to help our local businesses and to help our state. So there are a number of things, you yeah. know, I'm proud of, I'm proud of the 10 pieces of legislation we've had adopted and the other ones I'm still fighting for. Great. Well, it's all good stuff, Dave. I really appreciate your time and I, I know you've been busy and certainly these days, uh, being a legislature, legislator has got to be, like none other, but um, appreciate your service to our uh, our district in the state of Ohio, and uh, we'll catch up with you soon. I hope. Great, Tim. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for reaching out. I, I I'm always glad to talk. And as you know, sometimes I ramble on, but um, you're good. I, I, I try to be as informative as I can. Well, I, I haven't met a politician yet that doesn't ramble on. <laughs> <laughs> oh my! Comes All with right, the territory. Well, I, I I won't comment on that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Take care. All right. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. To find more information about the discussion in this or prior episodes, be sure to check the episode notes section in your podcast app. Get notified and automatically download the latest episode by subscribing to the Construction Employers podcast in the iTunes Store or in Google Play. This podcast is brought to you by the Construction Employers Association. Find us on the web at www.ceacisp.org.